Let me, let me mention a book that we have out front that's just a small little booklet. This is the CSB Scripture Notebook for the book of Esther. Next Sunday, we start studying through the book of Esther. Um, we'll be going probably six or seven weeks or so through the book. Um, the, these scripture notebooks have the text of scripture and then a blank page for you, either for personal study, devotional study, or taking notes from sermons, whatever you find helpful. Um, we ask for a donation of $4 on those, and, and that is a reminder that we'll be starting next Sunday. Those of you who are regular here know we've, we've mentioned that um, we'll be preaching from the CSB. We've been ESV for many, many years and are switching over to the CSB. Doug Shaw mentioned to me that Kindle has a $2.99 deal right now. If you want to get the CSB on your Kindle, uh, pretty good price uh, for, the, the, for the text of Scripture there. So we'll start that next Sunday. The, this morning is the last of three topical expository sermons, uh, working through passages of Scripture, but looking at particular topics. We, we've been through uh, the, the trustworthiness of God and His Word, uh, the reliability of, of resting in God and His Word. We've talked about Jesus' command to enlarge our definition, if you will, of neighbor, our understanding of who our neighbor is so that we would love our neighbor well, that we would do what Jesus commands in Luke chapter 10. And today's message is on why we are pro-life. Each of these is prompted by different circumstances, different concerns. Today's came about in part because today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, uh, in particular right around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade that we have that, um, that recognition of, of life issues on these Sundays. But also, for me personally, it was prompted in large part last October um, at the Assist Pregnancy Center Banquet. You heard about Assist as Vashon was sharing to you during the offering time. Their executive director, Madeline um, Schlenz, was speaking and just gave some opening remarks and, and just um, struck me. She was talking about how the, the Dobbs decision, the, the follow-up from that has been that the abortion issue, at least on a political level, is being, is being decided on the state level. And, and just the anticipation uh, of states either bringing about restrictions or, or responding in different ways, and, and, and yet so many states have acted now to uphold abortion since Dobbs. And she said this, those of us who prayed for years to see an end to Roe find ourselves disoriented, surrounded by a society embracing abortion as a fundamental right. We have found ourselves in a new war for hearts and minds and truth. I think that's a compelling comment, and, and, and indeed the polling certainly bears this out. Gallup's most recent numbers, uh, asking people if they are pro-choice or pro-life, which, which label they would adopt, 52% identify as pro-choice, 44% as pro-life. Those numbers have historically, a number of years, have been close to that 50-50 break, but that's also a shift in terms of higher numbers that, that would identify as pro-choice and lower numbers that would say they are pro-life. Still almost a million abortions reported each year in the United States. Many of them now, most of them in fact, are done with pills often advertised as being an at-home abortion. At that banquet, the assist director also said that one of the things they're seeing is a marked increase in the number of women and couples who are determined to have an abortion. Uh, they come in and yet they don't want to talk about other options. They don't want to look at the ultrasound screen to see the life that is within. It, it, sadly, the, the language of reproductive freedom that we hear so often really is a bold, 
evil and theological statement in, in that what it says is, I will do as I please. I am in control and it is my body. Therefore, it's the equivalent of saying I am God. I will decide life in this case. The abortion rights movement wants you to accept as irrefutable fact that a pregnant woman has the full and sole right to do with an unborn child as she pleases. And that is the logical outflow of a self-worshipping culture that says I do what I want and whatever makes me happy. We are in dark days, but we are not without hope. We've already been encouraged this morning by testimonies of God's power and God's grace to save. And we'll talk more about that hope. But this morning, I, I want us to, to look to the scriptures to answer two questions. Why are we, and speaking now as, as a pastor here at Grace Bible Church, why are we pro-life and what does it mean that we are pro-life? And so let's start with the why question first, why we're pro-life. And if you have the notes or the sermon notes handed out, you, you kind of see my outline on this. The first answer is because all human beings are created in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says God created man and woman in his image after his likeness. That's the starting point. There is a creator who made the universe and who created human life. And in doing so, and particularly with humans, he made them to be, uh, if you will, ambassadors, uniquely his ambassadors. In the same way that God sets forth the the pattern, the design for the tabernacle in the wilderness where the Israelites worshiped. So we have been made after the likeness of God. We are patterned after him. And so in limited and imperfect ways, we reflect our creator. There's no further explanation in the text of exactly what that means. God simply states it as fact of all of his creation, humans alone are made in his image and that makes human life sacred. And thus, when you get a little further along in the book of Genesis, that's why there's the sanction for the ultimate penalty for a murderer. In Genesis chapter nine, verse five, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. The punishment was unprecedented because human beings are uniquely precious to the creator because of how he has made us, that we are created in his image. So the question then that really sort of impinges on the cultural debate about this is, yes, God cherishes human life, made after his image, but what about those who are not yet born? What about those who are still in the womb? Are we, are we conferring personhood? Is God conferring personhood upon them? Bible says a lot, a lot of instances where, where there is mention of the unborn. First, it tells us that God knows us before the womb. In Jeremiah chapter one, Jeremiah is introducing what is going to be a very difficult message for the nation of Judah, because it's going to be a message of judgment. And Jeremiah knows that it will not be well received, that in fact, the people of Judah are longing to hear from false teachers who say all is good, you're doing just fine. There are no problems here. And so Jeremiah, one of the things he has to do early on is sort of establish his credibility that what I am speaking to you is the word of the Lord. I have been commissioned by the Lord. I am his servant. And so in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, he describes his commissioning this way. 
Jeremiah 1, verse 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So this is the proverbial, don't hate the messenger. If it's the message, that's really the issue. And yet what Jeremiah is saying is understand that what I am speaking is from God, that God has commissioned me, God has set me apart to declare this, and so I am speaking forth his word. The Lord knew Jeremiah before uh, his mother was even pregnant. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That Hebrew word for knowledge, we've talked about this word before, can be a knowledge or awareness of facts, as we would say, I know this, or I know that, I know that it's cold outside. But it can also have a deeper sense. Uh, Genesis shows us that when it speaks of Adam and Eve and the intimacy that bore Cain. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. There wasn't a, a sudden awareness or just an understanding in terms of knowledge. It was the most intimate of knowledge between a husband and a wife. And, and so when God said to Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you, it wasn't some mere awareness that, in God's sort of knowing of what is to come, that, that he knew that Jeremiah would be born to this woman. It is God's declaration that he knew Jeremiah, the person before Jeremiah existed. God had this knowledge of him before he was even in the womb. David celebrates this in Psalm 139, God's knowledge of, of who we are even before conception, Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. One of the Puritans illustrates this as the, the architect who, who puts down on paper this drawing of, uh, of this building and, and all of the rooms that are, are going to be constructed. It shows every room, even when they as yet do not exist. It, it, it is in the mind of the architect. It is already there. And in this sense, God is saying that I, I knew you before your days were even begun. I, I formed you. In Psalm 22, David is talking about suffering affliction. And, and David teaches us in Psalm 22, one of the things we must do when we are suffering affliction is to remind ourselves of the character of God. Go back and think about the person of God. And in Psalm 22:10, he says, on you was I cast from birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Before David took a breath, long before David as a man was cognizant of who God was or understood him as creator, David was already claimed by God. The creator had already set his affection on David before David was born. We don't know all of the circumstances behind Psalm 22, but it is a time of distress for David. His life seems to be in danger and he's crying out for rescue in the midst of this. And so he's reciting truths about God. And one of them is, you've been my God from when I was in the womb. You set your affection on me before I was born. And, and that knowledge so upholds him, so strengthens him and causes him to worship that as you come to the end of Psalm 22, David being surrounded by enemies and threats is able to declare the greatness of God to his people. And Psalm 22, verse 30 says, 
it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. In David's mind, there is already the looking ahead to those whom, whom God has destined to hear of his greatness, that that message will be proclaimed to them. Before the, before the big gender reveal, before the first ultrasound, before the, 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 the pregnancy test that shows positive, before even the act of sexual intimacy, God knows the person that he will form. There's nothing random about God's creation of human lives. Nothing is left to chance. God didn't simply form Adam and Eve and then sit back and wait to see how the rest would unfold like you and I wait for the next episode in the, the series that we're watching. God is intimately involved. The creator of the universe who made you knew you before you were even conceived. So God knows us before the womb. And secondly, he forms us. Jeremiah used that word form before I formed you in the womb. Familiar word to a Jewish audience because they understood the making of pottery, the taking of the lump of clay and forming out of it a vessel, having an, an instrument that comes about forming something from that clay. And that's what Jeremiah says before uh, God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, before I gave you shape, before I, I, I made you and I knitted you together, as David would say. Same word used for the creation of man in Genesis 2-7, where it's the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's the same language Jeremiah uses and is used elsewhere to talk about what happens in the mother's womb. And so when God formed you through the process of reproduction that God himself fashioned, his handiwork was no less dramatic than when he formed man from out of the dust of the earth. It is still his handiwork. Your life was fashioned together by the hand of your creator. And therefore, David says in Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Whether it's that ultrasound of that still unborn child, or it is the x-ray you see of some part of your anatomy that the doctor is examining. It's fascinating to see God's work in knitting together the, the human form to consider the detail of the organs and the skeleton and the veins, and, and all of it speaks evidence to a, a designer, a creator who formed us, who with the skill of a weaver knit together our frames. So God knows us before the womb, he forms us. And then third, there's examples in scripture of God calling and equipping people while they are in the womb. Galatians chapter one is an example. Paul writes Galatians in much the same sort of sense that Jeremiah is writing. It's a difficult thing to have to write because Paul has preached to these people. They have professed faith in Christ and then false teachers have come in and said that faith alone won't save you. You need to do works. You need to continue to obey the law if, if you're going to please God and be made righteous. You essentially need to continue to earn your righteousness. And so Paul has to write this very difficult letter to confront false teaching, but also part of it is to have to declare his authority to speak for God, to speak as an apostle. And so part of what he does is really patterned after Jeremiah in terms of affirming his authority. And in Galatians chapter one, he begins with this strong statement of, of who he is, but then Galatians 1.15, he says of God, he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. 
And so Galatians begins with this robust declaration of Paul's role as an apostle, precisely because he has to confront false teachers. But verse 15 is is like adding an exclamation point to that declaration by saying, God set me apart. He called me to this even before I was born. Set apart has the idea of selected. God selected Paul for a specific purpose even when he was in his mother's womb. That calling was initiated by God. Philip Ryken says, God claimed Paul's life and ministry while he was still in his mother's womb. Isaiah says much the same thing in Isaiah 49. The Lord called me from the womb. Later in Isaiah 49, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Luke chapter 1 describes the, uh, uh, John, who, who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And it is again before John is born that, that the angel comes and unfolds what this ministry of John will be, how he will go and declare the coming of the Messiah. So before John was being formed in his mother's womb, he already is this man in the mind and will of God who is being designed and equipped for a particular ministry to go and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. Similar language back in the Old Testament in the book of Judges in terms of the coming of Samson. In, in Judges chapter 13, says to uh, the Lord appears to a woman, says, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And then the story goes on to describe how this son would grow to be a man who is uniquely devoted to God. There's this recurring emphasis throughout Scripture, incident after incident, where God's word makes it abundantly clear that that God has intimate involvement with human beings from before their birth. That personhood is clearly established throughout the scripture. That God knows and forms and sets apart and knits together with his purposes in mind. And so we are pro-life because we believe human life is made in the image of God after his likeness and because God knows, forms, and sets apart people before they're born. And then the third reason is because we're pro-life, God forbids devaluing life and sex. We are pro-life because God forbids devaluing life and sex. One of the issues that comes up surrounding the abortion debate is why. Why do women decide, why do women and couples, I should say, choose abortion? We rely mostly on eight states that collect that information and that report it, and then studies that are done that, that also collect such data through surveys. And the state data confirms what the research has found. Less than 5% of abortions are what would be viewed as exceptions. Rape, incest, the life of the mother. So more than 95% are for elective or unspecified reasons. Again, the research would say the primary reasons are generally economic. And and by the way, this is research from even within the abortion industry. This is not pro-lifers you know, skewing research in some way. The primary reasons are economic, matters of timing, concerns about the woman's partner, or concerns for how a child's birth will change one's life. In addition to that, Gallup does polling every year concerning the attitudes of Americans on the moral acceptability of certain practices. The question is not, do you think this is okay? Um, Do you think this should be legal? The question that Gallup frames concerning a whole host of issues is, do you believe this is morally acceptable or morally wrong? So it's a choice regarding morals. When asked if you believe 
Sex between an unmarried man and woman is morally acceptable or morally wrong. 74% said acceptable in the most recent polling. That, that number is up 20% over 20 years. And I, I say that to you just to make clear in our minds that, that this is the, the trend. This is the, the way that we are moving and thinking as a culture. Support for polygamy has doubled over 10 years. And when asked about whether or not it's morally acceptable for a married person to have an affair, only 12% said it was morally acceptable. Still sort of stunning on the 12% who find it morally acceptable, but that number is also doubled over the past decade. Ironically, when the same polling asks people, so what do you think about American moral values? Do you think they're excellent, good, fair, or poor? Remarkably, 54% say poor, only 10% say good, and 83% say our moral values are getting worse. Seems like we've got an odd dichotomy there. We're gonna go down this path, and we think it's pretty poor, and yet this is where we are. Western culture has increasingly embraced a belief that sex is primarily about pleasure because my body is just that, it's mine. And I can do what I please, I am in charge of it, and many, in fact, even view their own personal identity in terms of sexual attraction. And it all runs counter to God's word. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In the prior context to Paul saying that, he, he quotes two sort of slogans as commentators have looked at it, seems to be slogans that his readers in Corinth would have understood, popular sayings of the day, the, the one being all things are lawful. This attitude that I can do as I please, I have license to do, all is lawful for me. And then the next one goes on to speak about how pleasing the body is a good thing. It speaks of the, that, that, the, the food for the stomach and, and compares that to sex being for the body, that that, that the two are just sort of matching pairs, this, this freedom. And, and I'm saying all this because when we hear the term reproductive freedom, we are essentially hearing a rehash of the same ancient idea that people have license to do what they choose to sexually as long as no one's hurt in the process. The Corinthian slogans made it clear that they believed sex was for the body in the same way that food was for the stomach, a necessary appetite to be satisfied and enjoyed. God's word says no. Food for the stomach, yes, has, has a very specific purpose and important, there's an important relationship there, but the body is different. And, and that's when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, essentially, no, the body, you, you say the body is for sex in the same way that food is for the stomach, and God says no. Your body's meant for me. I am the one who has made you, and so therefore the body for the Lord, your creator says, it belongs to him. You ultimately were made to be joined to Jesus Christ. And when you are joined to Jesus Christ, then the Lord himself dwells within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the, that's the meaning of when it says the Lord for the body. It's the idea that the Lord now comes into that, that body. The Lord now resides within that body. And that's why 1 Corinthians 6.18 then, he brings the, the matter full circle and says, flee immorality, run from it. The, the wide road 
that has led to a majority of Americans now saying abortion is morally acceptable begins with wrong ideas about my body and God's gift of sex. The creator's good design for intimacy is that it is to be enjoyed within marriage between a husband and a wife. It is to be enjoyed as a celebration of the unique one flesh relationship sealed together in, in a committed vow between one man and one woman. And it is there that the act of procreation takes place, fulfilling the very command God gave of multiply and fill the earth. Through immorality of all sorts, God's gift is devalued. And when a woman and a couple choose together abortion, they denigrate God's precious gift of human life, destroying what has been uniquely created, designed, created, formed by God in his image, that which has been fearfully and wonderfully made. Friends, let me just say this. Regardless of the moral chaos of our culture, or at best we'll call it the moral ambiguity of our culture, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ and who are counting the cost of following Jesus Christ should not be confused about sex or life, about either of these issues. The scriptures are abundantly clear. God is not silent about treasuring human life, including the preborn. nor is he silent about his design for sex. Man either embraces or rejects God's design. But to claim that God's standards are somehow outdated, that they're somehow not as clear, perhaps, that is not a sign that your thinking has evolved. That is a declaration that you are unwilling to respond to the authority and the trustworthiness of God and his word. It is a, it is a determined response against the authority of God's word. So let me shift this now. What, what does it mean that we're pro-life? How, how should being against abortion impact us as a local church? First thing I'll say is I, I think it means we need to engage with our culture in deliberate and compassionate ways. By deliberate, I mean we should not back down from speaking the truth. We who believe in God's word should be willing to speak God's word to our culture lovingly, and, 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 and not in a way that's constantly wagging a finger and simply demeaning, but in a way that is proclaiming his truth. God's word is a lamp that lights the way and we should speak forth that word and not be afraid to do so. I'll mention polling one last time. You look over the past 12 years on the question of how people understand the Bible, what they think the Bible is, and there is this, this steady upward climb on the graph over 12 years to the answer of Americans who believe the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Ironically, at the same time, we are frequently told to accept and believe whatever man's latest ideas are about gender and sexuality and identity and all of these things. 
None of this is unprecedented. None of this takes the Bible by surprise. 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, Paul says in the next verse that the remedy to this, he says to Timothy, is to always be sober-minded to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, and to fulfill your ministry. So Paul says in the midst of a, of a world that is running away from God's truth and that wishes to hear stuff that is pleasing to its itching ears, he says you must remain spiritually, mentally alert sober about these things and proclaiming Christ. That's doing the work of an evangelist, is proclaiming Christ into that culture and holding forth the gospel, even when it means we are likely to suffer for it, to endure suffering. And so we need to be deliberate about speaking the truth. We need to be compassionate as well. If we are going to stand firm on being pro-life and encouraging a culture of life, that means we need to see our care aimed at the living who are suffering and who are in need and who are broken by the sin of the world. Those in our midst who need care, we are to love our neighbor, just as Jesus described in the parable of the Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. As a church, one of the ways we do that is to continue to work alongside Lorton Community Action Center, working with people who are struggling around us, serving them, seeking to, to be hands and feet and be involved in their lives. We support and serve and volunteer for organizations like ASSIST, who are on the front lines every day of meeting women and couples who now see this pregnancy as some unexpected crisis and need compassionate care from real people who genuinely love them and are willing to walk with them for the long haul and willing to provide for them and care for them in very material ways as well. Speaking of crisis pregnancies, a second implication of what it means to be pro-life is the application of the truth that we believe in a God who is good and sovereign. There are difficult pregnancies, and, and, and the ones that the statistics would label as exceptions. But God's good providence does not run out at the doorstep of unbearably miserable circumstances. God's goodness and his sovereign rule still exists, and he is still the one who redeems, who works all things together for good Amen. for them that love him and are called according to his word, to his calling. He still commands that even in those miserable circumstances, no one should destroy what he has knitted together, but rather we must trust him and know that he is both good and sovereign. For that truth to be embraced, it takes us to what I think is the last answer here. For us to be pro-life means we must be centered on Jesus Christ and his gospel that in all we do in terms of our speaking and our ministering in this area of abortion, that the gospel is centered to our conversations and to our ministry. And I'll give you at least two ways that I, I, I think I see that playing out. First one is the gospel is about God's power. 
right? Romans 1.16 says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The creator of the universe, the one who formed us, is mighty. But through his gospel, you and I avail ourselves of the actual power of God. And so whether it's, it's a temptation to sin sexually that we've struggled with repeatedly before and the temptation is back again or there are seemingly impossible circumstances surrounding an unplanned pregnancy, we must desperately rely on the power of God. We must believe that God is mighty and that he does desire to save and he does desire to redeem and rescue us even in these circumstances. The stories every year at the assist banquet, it's the stories from the, 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 the moms who come and share that, that just testify of God's powerful work in the middle of events that are just fraught with adversity. To hear um, the, the, the woman speak who is literally being threatened with abuse from her boyfriend who is demanding that she abort and her finding hope and rescue in that and having that child and being able to get away from that threat to hear from the woman who already has a child and she's, she's barely making it and she's not sure what, what's gonna happen with housing or income or job or any of that and, and, and to hear again of God's provision in these circumstances. Time and time again, we hear of God doing above and beyond, immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, because that's, that's what God does. He is powerful in that way. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the means by which that power brought to sinners and, and, and gives to those he saves what Ephesians 1 calls the immeasurable greatness of his power. The God who commands us to cherish his good gifts of sex and life and to use them according to his will is the only one powerful enough to still redeem even the ugly circumstances that have arisen when we have failed to trust and obey him. And that's because the other way that we must apply the gospel to being pro-life is through the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins that is at the core of the gospel. Abortion is not unpardonable. If you have sexual sin in your past, if you have the sin of abortion in your past, first you are not alone, but primarily and more importantly, you have not strayed beyond the reach of the grace of God. You have not gone into some no man's land desert where God has cast you out. He is a God who desires to save broken people. In 1 Timothy chapter one, Paul declares, look at me, I was a blasphemer. I actually mocked God and I was a violent persecutor. I actually terrorized believers in Jesus Christ. And what does it say there? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. You are not beyond the reach of the mercy of Jesus Christ. If you think you are, then, then the word of God is appealing to you and I am appealing to you to run to Jesus Christ, to go to him and confess to him that you are a sinner and that you are in need of forgiveness and he promises to forgive those who come and who trust in him and then you too become another testimony of his extraordinary patience 
So Paul says, why did he do this in me? So that he would show you that he will be patient with you and he desires to save you if you will turn to him in faith and believe that Jesus took the penalty of your sin when he died on the cross. We do live in dark days, days when evil is not just happening, it is being called good and right and necessary, and those who oppose it are being called hateful and evil. And that means for followers of Jesus Christ, we must count the cost in our discipleship to be willing to follow him and to walk in truth. Because if we do, Philippians says, we have the opportunity to shine like lights in the darkness as we hold fast to the word of life. What a privilege as individual believers and as a community of believers that by virtue of the power and the grace of God, we can actually be used by him to make a difference in the midst of what Paul said was a crooked and perverted generation. May God help us to walk by faith in his truth, in his light, because we know that the darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning we have pondered what your word has said about those who, even before the womb, you have set apart, you have known those whom you form for your purposes. We've been reminded this morning from the, the mouths of some of our younger folks here of your sweet grace in exactly how you worked in their lives to draw, draw them to you that they would know you and trust you and, and this morning be used by you to proclaim your truth and, and to ask for your continued help to be used by you. Lord, we thank you. It is the gospel that is at the heart of this good news. It is, it is our life. It is our hope and forgiveness. And so, Lord, I come before you with gratitude. I come before you praying. Lord, we, we as a people... I suspect most all of us can speak to the effects of the, the brokenness of sexual sin as victims or participants or, or even both. Lord, that we have experienced just the, the ravages of that sin. Lord, perhaps some who have experienced abortion, who have encouraged or exhorted someone to, to have an abortion. Lord, we, as a broken people, our hope is in Christ now. We've come to, to give you thanks that in Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is the washing away of sin by the very shed blood of our Savior. And there is not only the, the joining with him in his death, but there is the rising to new life to being one who has been cleansed, to being one who is described in the scriptures as a new creation in Christ. What a joy. Lord, help us as a people to speak truth clearly, to not shy away from speaking truth, but help us also to be compassionate to the world that is so broken and lost around us 
if all we do is engage on this as a political issue or we wag our finger at, at them for their brokenness and we don't turn them to Christ, we miss the hope. We miss the greatest message that you have given to us as your ambassadors. So may we be faithful to love as Christ, to serve and to speak as our Savior. And Father, would you use our church to, to minister to the community that you've put us in? Help us to, to minister to, to broken lives and to show them the hope of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.